This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Welcome to the Elisa Childers podcast, where we equip Christians to identify the core beliefs of historic Christianity, discern its counterfeits, and proclaim the gospel with clarity, kindness, and truth. And I have just had a phenomenal discussion with a pro-life apologist, Scott Klusendorf. Really want to encourage you to pick up his book. This is an updated second edition of The Case for Life. Look at that beautiful cover, Equipping Christians to Engage the Culture. Uh, this book is going to be such a valuable resource to you, as I hope this podcast will be. There are so many many highlights from our discussion today. We really focused on the personal responsibility of each Christian to speak publicly about these things and how that can have ripple effects in our culture. We're also going to really equip you to bring a very clear, concise argument for the pro-life case. And we also engage with some progressive Christian pushback. I'm so thrilled that in the book, Scott actually does engage with a lot of the redefinition of terms that progressive Christians have brought into the pro-life debate redefining the word pro-life from something along the lines of um, advocating for children to be able to be born to uh, kind of this womb-to-tomb narrative, and then pointing out that if you're not, you know, exactly believing like they do on several other topics, then you're not really pro-life. We engage with that. We engage with Nadia Boltz-Weber's argument that uh, pro-life was not the original Christian position. We talk about standpoint epistemology and critical theory and how that has made its way into the conversation where everything now is seen in the uh, through the lens of oppressed versus oppressor. Such a jam packed conversation I think is going to be so helpful and so beneficial to you as we engage in our culture and politically and spiritually and in our churches with uh, the pro-life position and what is the personal responsibility of churches and individual Christians. So I hope you get so much out of this. I hope you get as much out of it as I did. And without any further ado, here is Scott Klusendorf. Well, Scott, it's so great to have you back on the podcast. You've just come out with your updated version of The Case for Life. I just love this cover. I love how simple it is with the black and, and the metallic uh, writing there on life. Now, this book you showed me just before we came on the air, this is a little bit thicker than the original version. Can you show the audience the difference? Look at that. Yeah. The book on top is the first edition, and this here is the new one. You can see it's I think over half bigger and uh, lots of new material for sure. That's awesome. What led you to update the book? What Was there just a, a lot changing in the movement that, that caused you to think, oh, I got to update this? Well, in a post-Row world, Elisa, what I noticed is pro-life Christians have some new challenges in front of them. And here are the ones that I think are most prominent in front of us. Number one, we're in a culture that doesn't know how to think critically. In fact, it's a culture that thinks reason, evidence, and logical thinking is oppressive. That's the whole woke worldview that says yes. if you try to be reasonable and logical, you're being oppressive to people who use different means of knowing. So there's that. Uh, there's the issue of what worldviews inform the abortion debate. A lot of times as pro-life Christians, we talk right past people who are bringing prior worldview assumptions to the table. And if we aren't aware of what those assumptions are, we could miss a chance to connect with them. So I thought I needed to write a book that would address that. And then a third thing that, that I really was driven by is the need for rank-and-file pro-lifers to know who the big players are on the other side. Who are the worldview drivers that are putting out the ideas that get filtered down to culture? So there's a whole section that surveys the big cats like Peter Singer, Michael Tooley, Kate Greasley, who's the new kid on the block, David Boonin and others. And we don't take a, a deep, deep dive into them, but it's a survey overlook of what they think and how we might reply as pro-lifers. And then a fourth thing I added here in the new edition, which I thought was essential to do was a whole section on what does a pro-life church look like? Because mm. it's not enough to just attack the church and say, you're not doing enough. You've got blood on your hands. 
we really need to give churches a game plan. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to put my money where my mouth is, and I'm going to go ahead and say, this is what you should do as a church. And I give a four-part plan for that. And then finally, and this is where I knew I was sticking my neck out, but I thought, you know what, I'm going for it anyway. I decided to assume that my readers must take personal responsibility for communicating on abortion publicly. That means they need to know what to say if they speak publicly on this issue. So I give them advice on how to put a presentation together. How do you put material together so it's persuasive, clear, and understandable? So those are the big updates in a post-Roe world. And the overarching theme here is, Elisa, that in a post-Roe world, our biggest problem is not marketing. Our biggest mm. problem is worldview. The culture does not agree with us on our fundamental assumptions, and we better understand that and understand it quick. And we need to be prepared to engage at the worldview level as well as the popular and political level. Oh, very good. Well, I want to touch a little bit on all of those points, but I want to really focus on that personal responsibility because my hope for this episode was to give our viewers and our listeners a lot of really practical talking points, maybe a way to construct an argument for the pro-life case, how that argument might be made in the workplace or with friends or, or over coffee or at a play date with your kids. Like, how can we communicate these things in a way that's persuasive? Um, of course, you mentioned that we are living in a culture that doesn't know how to think critically and in many cases thinks that critical thinking and logic is actually oppressive to certain cultures. Like, how do we navigate these things in relationships? I'd really love to touch on. And um, in your book, you talk about the essential pro-life argument. We're going to talk through that. But talk about keeping the main thing the main thing. What do you mean by that? That's so important, Elisa, because what happens is every time abortion is brought up in conversation and the pro-lifer begins to make his claim or her claim, right away the critic will generally change the subject. Oh, you're a man. You have no right to speak on this issue. Oh, you're a woman who's just imposing your religious views on others. Or they, they say you don't care about people or you don't care about families. You don't care about poor women, or whatever else they bring up, a million objections, all of which have nothing to do with the main question in play here. So by keeping the main thing the main thing, what I mean is we need to begin with a clearly stated argument for our position, and then we need to keep bringing people back to that argument so they stay on focus and we stay on message. So the basic pro-life argument that we want to put out there, in fact, in my training sessions, Elisa, I tell people the three most important words in pro-life apologetics are syllogism, syllogism, syllogism. <laughs> well, why would I say that? Because if you don't stay focused on your pro-life syllogism, that is a formal statement of your argument, people are going to change the subject on you. Any of your listeners that have been married more than 10 years know this is true, if you've ever been in an argument with your spouse and you are losing, every rational mind in the universe knows you're losing, the Lord knows you're losing, you're going to change the subject to save face, right? I mean, it's human nature. So it's very important we keep people focused on what pro-lifers are actually arguing. And here's our argument in a nutshell. Premise one, it's wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. Premise two, Abortion intentionally kills innocent human beings. Conclusion, therefore, abortion is wrong. Now, Elisa, that argument may be mistaken. It's possible I'm wrong about that. But notice this. The only way to refute it is to show that the argument is invalid, meaning the conclusion does not follow logically from the premises, or to show that the argument is unsound, meaning one or more of the premises is false. Outside of that, the argument stands. And what tends to happen in today's world, people don't engage the argument for soundness or validity. They change the subject and attack you for being a man or attack you mm -hmm. for being religious or attack you because you're a conservative who hates women. Well, maybe I do and maybe I don't hate women. How does that refute my argument? And the point we need to make with people in this post-Row world is arguments stand or fall on their merits not the person making them. If somebody reads your book, Another Gospel, or your new book coming out with Tim Barnett, and they take issue with it, they need to address the arguments you're making. It's not enough for them to simply say, I don't like those people. They come off as being harsh or mean. 
That yeah. doesn't refute the argument. Now, that's not a license to be harsh and mean, but it does mean that our arguments stand apart from us as individuals. But in our culture today, everything is politicized at the individual. Everything is the politics of personal destruction. So instead of refuting our arguments, people try to dismiss them, which is intellectually lazy. And we as Christians need to narrate the debate and bring them back to the core issue we're talking about. Yeah, that's a great point. In fact, you brought up the book with Tim. Tim and I were doing an interview for the book on someone else's podcast, and there was a skeptical question that came up. Um, and the skeptic was saying, well, Elisa, have you and Tim, do you, do you have meaningful relationships with deconstructionists? You know, what gives you the right to basically say all the things you're saying? And Tim pointed out, he said, you know what, first of all, the the answer to that question is irrelevant. You know, I take issue with the question itself, because what we've right. done is engage on a deep level with the arguments of the deconstructionists. We're in, engaging with their ideas and we're showing the, you know, the answer to those ideas, whether or not we have actual relationships or how deep those relationships go is really irrelevant. And that's really just the basics of critical thinking. And you've that's brought right. up, you know, the, the syllogism. And, and so it, it, I do want to just before we kind of make the sled case, what I, I want to have you do, when you bring up that syllogism, there is this tension, though, with our culture, because our culture is very postmodern. And in many cases, people don't care. They do not care that you have a sound and valid uh, syllogism, which if anybody's unfamiliar with what that's talking about, it's basically just you have a premise or two or more. And then if the premises are true, the conclusion and the conclusion logically follows, then it's true. And uh, but but in many cases, People aren't thinking, oh, well, I take issue with premise one, or I take issue with premise two, or I don't think that conclusion follows. They're, they're just literally thinking that because you're saying these things or you're, you're talking in these critical thinking terms that you are just, you know, wrapped up in the, you know, post-enlightenment and, and you're, you don't know how to think, you know. And, and really, I think this is coming from, you mentioned, from wokeness, right, from standpoint epistemology, yeah. which says our knowledge really yeah. comes from our level of oppression. And we have more and more, more moral authority to speak on something, the more oppressed we may or may not be. How do you engage with somebody that's coming from that worldview, from that mindset with a logical syllogism? Like, how do you bridge that? I think it's very important we do what's called narrating the debate. You kind of mm. call a timeout. You say, can I make an observation here? I just laid out an argument for my view. I notice you dismissed it because you said I don't have standpoint, that I don't understand women. women. I'm not a woman. I'm not a minority. I'm not an oppressed person. I'd like to know, do you understand pro-lifers? Have you ever been a pro-lifer? If not, who are you to critique my position? So I, I tend to throw it right back at them. I remember being at a high school not long ago, and I'm speaking to 700 students at a, 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 a rather liberal Christian high school, and the quarterback of the football team stood up real smugly and said, are you a woman? Well, if not, what right do you have to speak? And I asked him a question. I said, uh, you play football. I said, are you a referee? No. Have you ever questioned a referee's call? No. Well, who are you to do that if you've never been a referee? And the student body just busted up laughing. But it, you can point out that this stuff points right back at people. Their argument is literally self-refuting because they've cut the argument out, or I should say they've cut the legitimacy of the ground for their own argument out at that point. If yeah. everything is a position of standpoint, they don't have any standpoint for attacking me. That's a great point. And that's one that I think is often they're not applying the claims they're making really to their own right. statements and to themselves. And so that's that's helpful. Let's let's go through the SLED argument. You know, I think a lot of, it's such an easy acronym to remember, S-L-E-D. And this is just a very basic way, very simple way to make the pro-life case. Walk us through what that might look like. Well, I hope you're enjoying this conversation with Scott Klusendorf. I hope you're learning a lot about the pro-life cause. If you love the pro-life cause, you're going to love all of my sponsors today, but you're going to love my first one. This is Carly Jean Los Angeles, CJLA. This is a Los Angeles-based clothing line run by Carly Brennan. She's a mom of four. She's a Christian, and she's vocally pro-life. In fact, one of the things I love about buying clothes from CJLA, like this really cute sweater that I'm wearing today, is that I know that some of the money is going to pro-life resource 
pregnancy centers. In fact, CJLA gives money and clothes to uh, pro-life resource pregnancy centers in Los Angeles, and I just love that. So if you want to try it out, if you've been thinking about it, go to carlyjeanlosangeles.com, and you can use my code ALISA for 20% off your first order. Again, that's carlyjeanlosangeles.com. Use my code ALISA for 20% off your first order. Well, the SLED acronym was first put forward by a philosopher at the University of Rhode Island named Stephen Schwartz, and it's important to understand how we use it. We don't use the SLED acronym as a slam dunk, nobody can ever answer us afterward type argument, but we do use it as a way to say there's no essential difference between Elisa the embryo and Elisa the adult woman that would justify killing her at that earlier stage of development. Differences of size, level of development, environment, meaning where we are, and degree of dependency, there's your sled, are not good reasons for saying we could kill you then, but not now. So just to go through those very briefly, size. Well, as an embryo, you and I were smaller than we are today. But since when does body size as a matter of principle determine value. Men are generally larger than women. Do men deserve more natural and fundamental rights than women simply because they tend to be larger? That's the principle our critics are going to have to argue for. What about level of development? Yes, you were less developed as an embryo. And my answer is so. Why does development matter in the first place? And this is a key point, Elisa. Too often pro-life Christians assume the burden of proof when they should not. We need to look at our critics and say, it's interesting you bring up level of development. Why is that decisive in the first place? Why does my level of development have value-giving properties to begin with? They need to argue for that. It's not enough for them to assert it. What about, uh, what about level of development? A two-year-old girl is less developed than a 21-year-old young woman. For example, the two-year-old girl does not have a developed reproductive system yet. Is she less human and valuable than the 21-year-old who does? I mean, I speak to high school students all the time. They are less developed than their parents, both physically and intellectually, which comes as a shock to many of them. But the reality is you're not more human and valuable simply because you have more cognitive power. What about environment where you're located? You were in the womb, now you're out. But how does where you are determine what you are? When you moved from your, I'm just going to guess here, from your kitchen to the studio where you're rec re recording your podcast, you changed location, but you didn't stop being you. A drive of 70 miles doesn't change you from one kind of person to another. If that's true, how does a journey of seven inches down the birth canal suddenly transform you from non-human, non-valuable thing we can intentionally kill to a valuable human being that we can't? And the answer is location doesn't determine value. Finally, what about your degree of dependency? Okay, you depended on your mother for survival. My answer is so. Why does that matter? Again, tell me why that's a value-giving property that allows me to kill you at that stage, but not now. Conjoined twins depend on each other's bodily systems, but we don't think we can slit their throats simply because they can't live independent of one another. In fact, I'm thinking specifically right now, and maybe you can help me out with their names. There's two adult young women. I want to say they're the Henschel twins, Brittany and Abigail. But the press has followed these twins since infancy, and they are joined literally at the hip. You look at them, there's one set of legs, and then from the waist up, two body trunks, two shoulders, two heads. Their, their circulatory systems are intertwined. Their organs are shared. You cannot separate them without killing both of them. But if it's true that dependency on another human being means you have no value and no right to life, then both those girls can be killed even at age 32. So mm. you can see that these four differences that people love to assert as being value giving really don't have a lot to them once you unpack them. Why mm. are they value giving? How does a difference in size or level of development or environment or degree of dependency change the essential nature of the human being at the earliest stages of development? That's what they need to argue for. And the SLED acronym exposes how vacuous their argument really is. Mm. It really does. And it 
I think it comes down to, for a lot of people, just the difference between what, what a person is and what a life is, right? Because it, it used to be that people were who were making the pro-choice arguments were saying things like, well, it's not a human life. Well, science has proven that it is a human. It's a human life, right? So right. now the argument has shifted to, well, what is what is a person? When does personhood uh, come to be? So how might we interact with somebody who might say something like, well, yes, it's a human life, but it's not a person yet? Yeah, this is a classic case of where, as I mentioned earlier, we need to do some worldview investigation before we engage people. There is a worldview in play when someone makes that claim that you can be a human but not a person. And that worldview is a philosophical anthropology known as body-self dualism. And that's a big term, but I'll unpack it for your listeners and make it simple. Body-self dualism simply says the real you, the core of your identity, has nothing to do with your body. In fact, your body is just mere matter that you're free to exploit any way you want. The real you is your thoughts, your desires, your cognitive self. And until you have that ability to see yourself existing over time as a single subject of consciousness, you don't have a right to life. Now, by the way, body self-dualism is what gives place to things like men saying, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. The whole transgender debate assumes body self-dualism, as do arguments for gay marriage in many cases. So this worldview of the human person known as body self-dualism is what's underlying this claim that being human is not enough, you've got to be a person. And the first question we should ask people is, why should I believe there can be such a thing as a human that's not a person? Notice they're asserting something here they need to argue for. Make them argue for it. And then point out that on that view of body-self-dualism, a lot of crazy starts to happen. First of all, body-self-dualism is very counterintuitive. So let me ask you a question, Elisa. Have you ever hugged your parents? Yes. Not if body self-dualism is true. Can you hug aims, desires, and a sense of self over time? No, you hugged your mom and dad. You hugged their bodies. So we understand that this is something that doesn't make sense. We engage with people on a bodily level, not just a mind or non-material level. And that fits with the Christian view, that we're a dynamic union of body and soul. We're not merely a body, not merely a soul. We are a dynamic union of that. I don't know if you can see it, but over my, my right shoulder, there's a lamp in the background. As you're looking at that lamp, your eye is physically making contact with it, and thus you're doing a bodily action, but your mind is making sense of what you see. So you have both body and mind involved, which speaks to the Christian worldview of us being a dynamic union of body and soul. I would also point out that on body self-dualism, you end up saying things like, well, my body showed up before my real self did. Uh, that sounds a little bit counterintuitive to me. I could go further, though, and say this results in savage inequality, because as soon as you start dividing the person from the objective reality of their body, and you make only some trait you've determined to be decisive as having the key factor involved in value, everything about human beings becomes subjective, and and I guess the best way to say it is arbitrary. Hmm. Who are you to decide what traits matter, and why do those traits matter and not something else? For example, why is it having a cognitive ability to see myself existing over time? Why is that decisive and not, for example, having a belly button that points out rather than in? They need to argue for this, and of course, they never, ever do. Think of the results of human equality, too. If we're going to say that self-awareness over time is what gives us value and a right to life, those who have more of that trait have a greater right to life than those with less, born or unborn. It doesn't matter. So if, for example, I wake up in the morning and I haven't had my three cups of coffee to get my brain working, and you have, and you have more self-awareness than I do, you have more of a fundamental right to life than I do because you're more self-aware and human equality then is out the window. So there's a lot of troubling things that go with this notion of you can be a person, but but that, or, or rather you can be human, but not a person. As soon as you arbitrarily divide one class of humans here, we can kill from another class over here, we can't. And you do it along arbitrarily selected traits that you have imposed 
well, then human value has no foundation moving forward because there will always be people with more or less of that trait, and that undermines human equality. So what happens when you have an unapologetically Christian coffee lover who wants to do good in the world? Well, you have seven weeks coffee. I absolutely love this coffee. In fact, I met somebody when I was speaking at a conference uh, last week who actually ordered seven weeks coffee because they heard about it on the podcast. And she told me, she says, you are not kidding. This is legit coffee. Now, this lady lives in Oregon where they are known for their coffee. And she approved seven weeks coffee and said, this is such good, legit coffee. And here's what I love about seven weeks. I love that they're pro-life. I love that 10% of every order goes to pro-life resource pregnancy centers. I love that. But I also love the quality. This is better standards than organic, shade-grown, direct trade, mold-free. This is such good coffee. If you want to give it a try, go to sevenweekscoffee.com. Use my code ELISA for 10% off. That's sevenweekscoffee.com. Use my code ELISA for 10% off. I was recently in Canada talking with some Christians there about the euthanasia laws, and it sounds a lot like there's a lot of overlap in the way that people are thinking about these things, even when it comes to end of life. Um, what's the connection there that you see, um, you know, the trends, especially in other countries, as it's trending toward euthanasia, kind of based on this same type of approach to personhood? Exactly right. On personhood theory, which is grounded in body-self dualism, your right to live is exactly matched to the level of cognitive ability you have. And if you reach a certain threshold or fall below a certain threshold, your life can be forfeited because after all, you're only at that point a potential human being with rights, not an actual one. And only, only actual humans with personhood status have a right to life on this worldview, not merely potential ones. So what ends up happening is, we justify euthanizing people because they cost too much. This is happening in Belgium and in the Netherlands and now in Canada. I mean, in Canada, they're providing aid in dying to people who are depressed. I read about a woman yeah. yesterday who was suffering from mental illness that could have been treated, but instead of using money to treat her mental illness, they gave her money to kill herself. I mean, this is the ethic that we're now in play with in the Western world, and it's a scary place. It is a scary place. In fact, it reminds me of uh, Clay Jones' book, Why Would God Allow Evil? I don't know if you've read that book, but I have. He, he talks about how when he was researching genocide, you know, nice cheery subject there, but yeah. he said down to a person, every genocide researcher that he encountered said that genocide, you know, it's the average person that commits genocide. It's not the, the you know, the people with, um, uh, you know, that are psychopaths. It's people that take care of their dogs and make cookies right. for the bake sales. And, and I think sometimes it's hard for us to imagine how that could be the case. Like, how could I or you or people around us be capable of genocide? Well, look around you. It's happening. Right. I mean, it's happening in other countries with euthanasia. It's happening in America with abortion. And uh, man, I just pray that people will have eyes to see that. You know, Scott, you you are so obviously uniquely gifted to communicate on this topic. I'm just in awe hearing you speak on all these different topics. And I, I just imagine if I'm if I'm pro-choice and I'm having a conversation with Scott Klusendorf and you're pointing all these things out, I mean, what am I going to say to all of this? And, and so I'm curious to ask you that question. As you've maybe shared this information with people who are pro-choice, do you see a lot of people maybe change their minds or, or, or get stumbled by what you're saying? Or even in debate, does it cause them to pause and rethink, have you had much success with this? I, it's hard to measure success on the spot because I think we need to be careful to determine what do we mean by a change of mind. Mm. The great debater, William Rusher, who used to be on the show Firing Line, made the point that arguments are almost never won on the spot. They are mm. won two weeks later when the person is alone with their thoughts as they're driving through the Starbucks line waiting to get their coffee, and they admit to themselves in the quiet of that moment that they lost the argument. That's when the argument is won. So I've debated a lot of people publicly, and once in a while they'll grant a point, but most of the time the people I'm debating don't change their minds. But here's who does change their minds, the audience members who write me and say, you know, I used to support abortion, but now 
after living, listening to you and watching that debate, I'm having second thoughts. And that's where you go, okay, this is starting to resonate. I don't make the claim that arguments alone always carry the day. I think we both in our respective professions know that isn't the case. But just because arguments may not be sufficient to facilitate a mind change does not mean they're not necessary. They are a step that must be taken. And if you don't give people a foundation for changing their mind, then they really have no basis for doing it down the road, whether it's two weeks or two months later after they've heard your case. That's such an encouraging idea, too, to know that, you know, even though you might feel like you flubbed a conversation and you didn't say everything right. you know, perfectly the way you could have said it, you never know what's happening two weeks later when that person's going through the Starbucks line. I mean, that certainly has happened in my life where somebody made a great point, but I was in fight mode, but it was later that yeah. I went, gosh, I don't know if I really have a good answer for that. So be encouraged. I hope our audience is encouraged by hearing that, that if you'll just engage, if you'll begin the conversations, it's okay if you don't know how to do it as eloquently right. as Scott or as perfectly, but just start sharing some of this information and ask people to consider, you know, a, a different viewpoint on this. So I, I think that's such an encouraging point. I think for my audience in particular, because we do talk about deconstruction and progressive Christianity so much, um, one thing that I really want to hit on for my audience, and I'm so thrilled that you engage with this in your book, and that's sort of this re, this almost distraction that we see coming from progressive Christianity on the pro-life case. So I know noticed, Scott, maybe 10 years ago, most people who are now considered progressive Christians were also pro-life in the traditional sense. Like they would have right. said, yeah, we're not for abortion. And that has changed. I mean, I watched a, a collective mourning on Twitter and on Instagram when Roe v. Wade passed among the progressive Christians, just a, an absolute mourning. But that's because they've changed definitions and they've reshaped the argument. So part of that, and I'm so glad you addressed this, is the redefinition of even what it means to be pro-life, where pro-life used to mean, you know, obviously it, it was in uh, reference to abortion. It had to do with that. And then it was sort of redefined to mean like womb to tomb, like every kind of, of uh, you have to be against any kind of death in any way, shape or form. That's yeah. an exaggeration. But I love that you quote John Pavlovitz. And I'm going to read a little bit of this quote because... I think many people in our audience, when they start to bring out some of these arguments, they're going to face a very similar type of pushback that Pavlovitz uh, wrote about. And so um, Pavlovitz, if anyone is unfamiliar, is a progressive pastor, very popular author, blogger in the progressive Christian movement. I sort of, I think he's kind of like the liberal Matt Walsh. He's a, a provocative and, and kind of a, one of those fire starters, you would say. But he's talking about pro-life Christians, meaning people who... Uh, really, in his view, only care about getting kids birthed, right? It's just your pro-birth is really what he thinks it should be called. And and he takes it a step further um, that the only human beings that matter are Caucasian embryos. That's what he says, and you quote that in the book. Um, and he says, yeah. if you were truly pro-life— he said you would do you would want to do more than prevent abortions and then he lists out you'd be you'd be against hunger and poverty you'd want to prevent illiteracy and child mortality and forced prostitution you'd be um, preventing racism and bigotry and homophobia you'd be uh, you know fighting against guns you'd i mean and he goes into lgbtq issues you'd all these things he's listing so you can't call yourself pro life until you basically agree with him on all these different points and so he ends with this he says i defend all life equally i celebrate it all fully I protect it all passionately. I really wish you did too. And this, Scott, I think is one of the main pushbacks that that people in my audience are going to get from the progressive Christians that they know in their life. So how can we engage with that sort of redefinition of term and really distraction from, from the main point? Well, our next sponsor is a company whose products I use in my home just about every single day, and that is Good Ranchers, American meat delivered right to your door. Here's what I love about Good Ranchers. First of all, it's the quality. I have always been really picky about the meat that I make for my family. I've always looked for grass-fed beef, hormone and antibiotic-free. I've always looked for pastured and organic chicken. And what I love about Good Ranchers is they take those standards and raise them up a notch. So for example, the chicken has higher standards than traditionally organic 
organic chicken that you're going to find in the store. And here's what I also love. Each chicken breast comes triple trimmed and individually sealed. So if you just want to pull out one for yourself, it's super convenient, or you can pull out as many as you need to feed your family or your guests. It's so convenient to just have all of that on hand. So if people want to come over, it makes serving other people and having hospitality a lot easier for people like me who don't necessarily naturally have that gift. So I'm super thankful for Good Ranchers. And January is a great month to try it out. If you've been thinking about it, pull the trigger in January, because if you sign up this month, you're going to get two pounds of uh, free chicken in every box for a whole year. That's $189 value. So if you want to check it out, go to goodranchers.com. Use my code ALISA for free chicken for a year plus $20 off your first box. Again, that's goodranchers.com. Use my code ALISA. Well, the first thing is make sure you don't do what a lot of pro-lifers do and give a defensive response. They'll say things like, oh, we do care about people after birth. We do care about people womb to the tomb. Don't, don't say that even though it's true. Instead, counterpunch by calling his bluff. The first thing I'm going to say to John is, okay, John, let's say I do everything you demand I do. I take care of every problem in society. Will you now become pro-life on abortion? I can tell you what his answer will be 100% of the time. No. And by the way, he doesn't care about all life equally because he's pro-abortion. So this idea that he, you know, treats it all equally and all valuable. No, he does not because he's pro-choice. He has the identical position of NARAL, Planned Parenthood, and every Democrat politician in the country. So he is not being honest when he says that he treats all life equally. But here's the question you really want to put to him. John, how does it follow that because I oppose the intentional killing of an innocent human being, I have to take responsibility for everything wrong in society? Please explain to me why that is and make him do the hard work of, of why he puts that on you. Notice that does two things. It gets us back to our syllogism, which he hasn't answered or refuted. And secondly, it, it kind of levels the playing field. I mean, imagine saying, Elisa, to the American Cancer Society, you have no right to call yourself a medical organization when you treat only one disease and not all of them. Why is it you only focus on tumors and you do nothing about diabetes? You do nothing about Crohn's disease. You do nothing about Lyme disease. You do nothing about heart disease or blood disease. You just treat one illness. You're not a true medical organization. Or imagine this, you're a ministry that is opposed to human trafficking, a very important ministry that, that I support and I know many others do as well. And imagine somebody coming to you if you were the head of that organization and saying, you don't really care about women because you only focus on one group of women, those being trafficked at the Atlanta airport or somewhere else. If you really were pro-woman, you'd care about all women womb to the tomb, but you don't. You only care about one group. Therefore, you're a hypocrite. You're not really pro-life. I wish you really were. I wish you really were pro-woman because if you were, you'd take care of all of them. Well, anybody who said that to a human trafficking uh, ministry would be out of their mind. And yet some of the same people who are very understanding about the need to be selective in our focus when we do specific ministries will turn on pro-lifers and say, you got to take it all on or you have no credibility. Yeah. And it just seems like a big distraction, but I love that you brought up the idea of burden of proof. And I just want to reiterate that for our audience, because it's such a powerful tool to remember that if you haven't made a claim, the burden of proof is not on you. It's on the person That's who's right. made the claim. There's kind of this famous, you know, hypothetical scenario where you have a college classroom where there's an atheist philosophy professor who goes after the Christian kid and says, well, hey, Christians believe X, Y, and Z. How do you defend that? And then the kid gets all defensive and, well, well, we actually this and that. And then now the kid is making claims and the burden of proof is on them. It's so yeah. smart to just really think about that burden of proof. And if like, for example, with this John Pavlovitz quote where he's saying, you're not this, you're not that. Well, you're not the one who's making claims. He's making claims. He yeah. needs to defend those claims, too. And you can yes. ask questions like, well, what? where did you get your stats for that or, or something like that, where you're asking questions, causing him to defend his claims rather than letting him put you in the position of having to defend something that you haven't even stated in the first place. And it's hard to do that right. when the pressure's on, isn't it? It is. And you know what's interesting, Elisa? When, when you take a guy like John Pavlovitz, he actually ignores the one group that doesn't care about kids once they're born. And let me tell you who that is. I'm not trying to get overtly political here, 
but it's the Democrat Party. They couldn't even muster the votes in the Senate to protect kids after they're born, the ones that survive abortion procedures. Every pro-abortion group in the country, including those that John supports, uh, said we're not going to pass a law protecting those kids who are born alive after abortion mm. procedures. Who's the one who doesn't care about kids after they're born? Pro-lifers? I don't think so. We, we do care. We've got pregnancy centers nationwide that care for women. We have all kinds of programs. We offer people, despite our sho shoestring budgets, we get it. We do this without federal aid. Uh, we don't have inexhaustible resources the way other organizations do, but nevertheless, we do everything we can. And what's happening is people like John Pavlovitz are engaging in what law professor Helen Avari calls a lazy slander of the pro-life cause. Mm. I love how she puts that. Because without evidence, they just assert that we don't care, that we hate women, we don't care about kids once they're born, but they do nothing to justify the claim that A, we're responsible to fix everything wrong because we oppose intentionally killing innocent human beings, or B, to back up their claim that we don't do anything. They just assert this. And you're absolutely right. We need to call them out on it. And I love to turn the tables on them, like I said, and simply say, okay, I'll do everything you demand. We'll take on the poor. We'll take on immigration issues. We'll take on refugees. Will you now join us in being pro-life on abortion? 100% of the time, Elisa, the answer will be no, which means they're, they're giving you a red herring. They're trying to change the subject. They don't want to engage your syllogism that abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. So they turn their attention on you and try to make the debate about you rather than about the argument you're making. And this is why I said at the outset, we have to keep the main thing the main thing. Everything comes back to those three key words, syllogism, syllogism, syllogism. Very good. Well, you brought up politics, so let's go there. Um, where are things at since Roe v. Wade? Because you, you see talking points on both sides. Um, what has the effect been since Roe v. Wade was overturned? Well, first of all, over, overturning Roe was a good thing. Let's not miss that. That's a good thing because with the overturning of Roe v. Wade, nine federal judges on the Supreme Court no longer have sole authority to set abortion policy. That's good news. The bad news is it's been returned to the people. And for years and decades, pro-lifers assumed wrongly that the American public was by and large with us on this issue. And if we could just get the federal courts out of the way and deal with a hostile press and take our case to the silent majority, we'd win. And that has been proven utterly false. The public is not with us. Our biggest problem is not the Supreme Court. It's not a marketing problem with the press. Our biggest problem is a worldview challenge. Mm -hmm. A majority of Americans do not agree with us that abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being and that that's wrong. And as a result, they vote that way. In fact, the pro-life cause is 0 for 8 since Roe has been overturned when the public has voted on abortion in various states. And the sad part is, Elisa, even in red states like Montana, Ohio, Kentucky, you are seeing the public overwhelmingly vote against the pro-life view. So we have a worldview struggle in front of us. And by the way, we've got 11 more states coming up in the next year and a half. They're going to have similar referendum on abortion. And, and my, my view right now is we're going to lose all of them, barring mm. a real change of course. So we have got to get pro-life Christians motivated and equipped to defend their views with everyone they know. It's no longer the case that we can leave the defense of the pro-life view to the professionals like you or me or Frank Turek. We all are pro-life apologists now. And what can we do uh, politically? I mean, obviously, you're hitting on that a little bit with your previous answer. The more people we can persuade in our even small spheres of influence as regular people is going yeah. to affect the way people vote ultimately. Um, but what what else can I mean, it, it, can, it sounds a little discouraging even to think, gosh, this if we're going to lose all these. What can what can we do? What can the average Christian do? Well, you're right. It is discouraging. And let me address that real quick before I jump into what we need to do. Uh, I think back to the prophet Jeremiah. God told him to stand in the city square and testify against child sacrifice. And then God gave him this job description. Nobody's going to listen to you. And yet that did not absolve Jeremiah of faithfully proclaiming truth. And we as Christians, I don't care how dark it gets, we are not 
uh, we don't get a pass on proclaiming truth. We have to do it anyway because that's our job as believers, to testify to truth. But I do think that there are people who are persuadable. So again and again, whenever I go out and speak on pro-life or my team goes out and speaks on pro-life, sometimes in front of large Catholic high schools, sometimes at Christian worldview forums, over and over again, Elisa, the number one comment we get is, We've never heard this before. We've never heard a case made for the pro-life view. So the issue is not that the pro-life argument is bad and we need to somehow become whole life to be effective. No, the the problem is people aren't hearing it. And the reason they're not hearing about it is our churches aren't dealing with it. Our Christian institutions aren't dealing with it. Our Christian conferences aren't bringing the issue up and equipping people. And as a result, our people aren't being equipped to engage the culture on an issue that involves the intentional shedding of innocent blood. Mm. That's the big problem. But what I would say politically, here's what we can do. Even if you're in a state that can't ban or won't ban abortion outright, and some states have now, and that's good since Roe, but even if you're in a state that won't, you should always vote to limit the evil and promote the good insofar as possible, given the political realities crashing in around you. So when people tell me, well, I don't want to get involved in politics, I remind them that the Christian worldview, Elisa, applies to all of life. We can't say, well, the Christian worldview applies to everything but this box over here we call politics. No, your Christian worldview should involve all of life. And by the way, if I were a slave on a slave ship in 1860 outside Charleston Harbor, I would be praying very hard that my fellow Christians would get involved politically to do something about my predicament. So it's not loving our neighbor to say, you know what, we're just not going to get engaged protecting them because we don't want to be political. Every issue becomes politicized eventually. Mm. Slavery became politicized. Spousal abuse became politicized. Racial relationships became politicized. That's no excuse for ducking out. Right. That's such a good point. And our friend Frank Turek has a whole talk on this that I was I, I just yep. found to be so persuasive where he brought out the point that, you know, abortion wasn't a political issue until it was. And so it, it and, was. You know, and he, he pointed out some of these other ones that you've just mentioned as well. So it doesn't even make sense to say, well, now that it's political, we can't talk about it anymore. Well, then all the other side would have to do is just make something political to get all the Christians to shut up about it. And that can't be yep. right. <laughs> Well, there was a wildly popular uh, internet piece that circulated uh, in the last election cycle, and I expect it to resurface any day now. I'm sort of surprised it hasn't shown up. And the the sad thing is Christians are the ones sharing it. And it's by this psychologist named Carolyn Yoder. And she basically says, look, no matter what we do, we're going to have blood on our hands. If you're pro-life, you probably don't oppose capital punishment and war. Therefore, you're guilty, just as guilty as the abortionist, as if these issues are morally equivalent. But then she goes on to say this, why don't we just focus on loving each other? Okay, that sounds real good. But let me ask you something, Miss Yoder. Does each other include the unborn? When you say you wish we would do this, does we include the unborn? And if so, Is it loving to stand by politically while they're butchered systematically with government approval? No, it's not loving. She's assuming the unborn aren't human. And this is a problem with so much, and I talk about this in the book, so much of the pro-abortion rhetoric simply assumes the unborn aren't human. Joe Biden stands up there and says, well, you know, all of us, we all as Americans should celebrate reproductive freedom. It's good for all of us. Mr. President, does us include the unborn? He doesn't even go there. He just assumes that it does not. Is reproductive freedom, by which he means abortion, good for the unborn? Is it good for them to be systematically dismembered? This is what he doesn't talk about. He just assumes the unborn aren't human. Mm. So true. I want to give another type of progressive pushback that our audience might uh, encounter when they maybe start to speak up about some of these things. Uh, there's a progressive uh, Lutheran minister named Nadia Boltzweber. You may be familiar with her work, but she wrote a book called Shameless several years ago uh, about basically her, she was making the case that the Christian sexual ethic doesn't just need a few tweaks, but it needs to be completely burnt down and we need to start from scratch with the sexual ethic. And she goes into abortion and she basically says, and I found this to be persuasive for a lot of people because it makes them think, oh, well, if 
and, you know, if if pro-life, as we understand it, wasn't the original Christian position, then maybe we don't have to have that position either. And so she wrote that in her book, Shameless, that Christians originally believed that life begins at birth. Basically, I think she might have even—it's been a while since I've read it, but maybe she was piggybacking on what she was calling the Jewish belief that life began at breath. And she said, really, it was just the evangelical support of the pro-life position. Um, That's more of a modern political invention, you know, with the rise of the moral majority and things like that. So how could we answer a claim like that when when somebody says, well, actually, you don't have to be pro-life because the original Christians weren't even pro-life? I would look her in the eye and say, you know what? I agree with you completely. Any human being that God creates directly out of dirt is not living until God breathes life into their lungs. I agree with you. My question is, did you begin that way? If not, then Mm. that verse does not apply to you. And this is what people love to do. They love to play footloose with scripture. Here's how we know the Bible is pro-life. I'm going to grant for the sake of argument, Elisa, that there's no command against abortion in the Bible that the Bible doesn't mention the word. And I'm going to go even further and say that there's no direct passage that teaches the unborn or human. And I can still argue the Bible is pro-life and do so persuasively. Here's how. The Bible is clear that the shedding of innocent blood is particularly egregious as a sin. Not all sins are equal in Scripture. A lot of evangelicals get this wrong. It's true that we all equally share a sin nature that puts us under the wrath of God equally, but the acts that spring from that sinful nature are not morally equivalent. There's a difference between stealing a pencil and ripping somebody's face off. And if if you don't see that, there's something wrong with your moral compass. So in Scripture, the shedding of innocent blood is particularly egregious. And I, in fact, I'm preaching on this Sunday at my church, and I'm going to take them through about 12 different scriptures where this is taught. Why is the shedding of innocent blood egregious? Well, the Bible tells us why. Because all humans bear the image of God. And because they bear the image of God, intentionally killing them is wrong. Now the only question we need to ask is, are the unborn human? And we know from the science of embryology that the unborn are, in fact, distinct living and whole human beings from the one-cell stage, from the very beginning. Therefore, the commands against the shedding of innocent blood apply to the unborn as they do everybody else. And what our critics need to do is get back to this one issue. you got to demonstrate to me that the unborn are not human. You do that, I agree with you on this whole debate. I am vigorously pro-choice on women choosing their own husbands, choosing their own medical providers, choosing their own careers, choosing the clothes they wish to wear, the cars they wish to drive unless they're Priuses. I'm pro-choice on a whole (laughs) lot of issues. But some choices are wrong, like intentionally killing an innocent human being. That's a choice a civil society should not allow. We're back to the question, what is the unborn? And by the way, one other thing. When people say to me, well, the Bible doesn't say thou shalt not abort, Well, are you saying everything the Bible does not expressly condemn, it allows? Is that what you're saying? Uh, I mean, where in the Bible does it say, thou shalt not use neighbor for shark bait? It doesn't. Does that mean you can do it? I mean, this is a silly argument. And arguments like hers, really, I think there is a place for giving them some mild mocking. Yeah. Like the Bible doesn't say you can't commit grand theft auto, right? (laughs) That's right. That's right. But there are underlying principles that that springs from thou shalt not steal, right? Thou shalt not murder is what the abortion debate stems from. Well, for that matter, nowhere in the Bible does it say thou shalt not engage in gay bashing. But Christians don't do that because they realize the Imago Dei applies even to those that are caught in sin. And therefore, we can reason from Scripture using what we know to what is not expressly stated to come to a right conclusion. Yeah. Man, this has been utterly fascinating. I hope it's been so helpful. I do want to ask you one final question, but I I also want to point out for our audience today that all of the sponsors of today's podcast are openly and unabashedly pro-life. And I just love that. I love partnering with companies that make great products, but they're also very vocally pro-life in their ethic as well. So I just wanted to point that out to our audience as well. So support our sponsors as well, because they're putting their necks on the line to be very vocal about these things. But Scott, as we close out, I know we've got a lot of pastors that listen to this podcast. 
Um, what does a pro-life church look like? How can pastors begin to engage this topic? I, I was just in uh, Tucson and a uh, wonderful Calvary Chapel there. Uh, in fact, they, I think they've had you uh, at they have a, a an abortion an anti-abortion pro pro-life ministry, um, and I think they had you at their gala one one year. But the pastor was like, "Look, we we have to really start speaking out openly about this because yep. Arizona is one of those dates uh, those states where that's coming to yep. ballot." So, what does a pro-life church look like? What can pastors do? What should they be doing? If you had just a room full of pastors, what would you say to them? Pro-life churches have to do four things, and here they are. Number one. Preach, teach, and counsel a biblical view of human value. That is, we are not valuable as human beings because of some function we perform, like self-awareness or consciousness or viability. Rather, we are valuable because of the kind of thing we are by nature, creatures who bear the image of our maker. This is something taught in Genesis 1 in the Old Covenant, James 3 in the New, so it's consistent throughout Scripture. The second thing churches need to do is preach, teach, and counsel against the shedding of innocent blood. That is the intentional killing of innocent human beings through abortion. And that's taught in Scripture in Exodus 23:7, Proverbs 6, 16 to 19, Matthew 5, 21, to name a few. The third thing we need to do, and this is something a lot of churches really don't grasp, we need to minister to the millions of men and women in our churches nationwide who have participated in abortion, not just the women who've had abortions, but the men who encourage them to do it. And the way we minister to them is not by covering up abortion and refusing to talk about it. That does not spare them guilt. That spares them healing because unconfessed sin has them out of full fellowship with Christ. So we want to be truthful about abortion, but here's the thing we need to do. Then point them to the Christian gospel and that gospel is so amazing because it basically says, Elisa, that you and I cannot justify ourselves. We have to look to a God who justifies the ungodly. What a statement Paul makes in Romans 4, that Abraham, instead of relying on his own works, trusts in God who justifies the ungodly. Well, how can God justify ungodly people like me? And Scripture gives one answer. God poured out on Jesus the judgment I deserve so that I could be clothed in Christ's righteousness. And now God judges me on the basis of Christ's merits, not my own. That is a remarkably beautiful thing for post-abortion men and women to hear, that they don't have to try to fix themselves. The cure is found in the Christian gospel where a holy God imputes his son's righteousness to us, not because of anything we've done, but because of what his son did on our behalf. That's the Christian healing message. And then finally, we got to equip our people to engage. A lot of churches do okay on steps one and two, and they tend to falter on three and four. We got to equip our people. I teach at Summit, as do you, which is a Christian worldview conference for students. And I've been taking a poll now for eight years. I ask students after my day of teaching them, how many of you before coming to Summit heard in your churches a pro-life apologetics presentation aimed at equipping you to defend the pro-life view with non-churched friends. Mm -hmm. And out of each group of 200 students we get each summer, we get about 1,800 total, but each group of 200, I might get four or five hands that go up. Wow. Well, that's why we're losing. We're not mm -hmm. even reaching the people most predisposed to accept our view. So those are, that, those are the points I explore in the book about how you as a pro-life church can make a difference culturally. Very good. Well, we're obviously going to direct people to get the book, The Case for Life, Equipping Christians to Engage the Culture. But Scott, where else can people connect with you? Is there anything else you want to promote or anything that can help equip the body of Christ on this topic? Well, they can certainly engage with me on social media at scottklusendorf.com or on my Facebook pages where my podcast is is recorded and they can look up past uh, sessions where we've talked about defending the pro-life view. They can also visit our website at lifetraininginstituteprolifetraining.com, and there they can get apologetics tools for engaging as well. But I do encourage people to get the book. And by the way, not just those who've never heard of it, but those who maybe had the first edition, I make you a promise. The new edition is not merely a cover redesign. There's a lot of new material in there, and it will equip you for the post-row culture that we now find ourselves in. 
All right. Well, I want to thank my guest, Scott Klusendorf. And Scott told me before we went on the air that updating a book is really more like writing a whole new book. So definitely get this, even if you've had the original uh, edition, the second edition, The Case for Life, Equipping Christians to Engage the Culture. And let's remember, as we pursue Christ, to keep a sharp mind, a soft heart, and a thick skin. We'll see you next time. So pray for me and I will pray for you. No turning right or left will make it through. The road that's narrow and the gate that's small. Don't give up, it's gonna be. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.